This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Well, I am delighted today to have Monique Attinger, who is a certified holistic nutritionist working with those who want to reduce their oxalate intake. She discovered after her daughter was diagnosed with an oxalate problem that lowering oxalates in their lives supported both her own and her daughter's better health. As a result of that experience, Monique has been involved in the low oxalate world for over a decade. She also brings to her nutrition consulting all the skills she gained during business consulting for over 20 years, as well as her natural curiosity and desire to understand. It is her unusual mix of interests, training, skills, and experience, which allow her to support those who want to get to the bottom of their health issues. Since 2012, she has been helping clients to change their health through changing their diet. Welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you. It's lovely to be here, Cynthia. Lovely to be able to meet you um, in person by Zoom. Yes, outside of Twitter, right? (laughs) Outside of Twitter, yeah. Yes. So, you know, I think for many of our listeners, and I I feel like myself, I, I think our stories behind where we find ourselves devoting a lot of our energy is always of tremendous curiosity. So I'd love to kind of hear about your journey, how you went from being in the business community to having a daughter that was having some health issues to then developing this niche that you've kind of been in for the past 10 years and clearly way ahead of the curve because for many of us, myself included, oxalates really weren't on my radar, certainly not as a nurse practitioner, definitely as a nutritionist, but you know, with all the celery juice craze and kale crazes that are ongoing, I think there are a lot of people that will really be inspired by the story. Well, I'm hoping so because I think um, you know, as a fellow uh, practitioner, you'll also realize how this is run under the radar. Mm-hmm. It's it's very much like the bias in the in the medical world has been: if you don't have kidney stones, oxalate can't be your problem. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, there were a lot of things that were known. It was known that oxalate was pro-inflammatory. It was mm-hmm. known that once you developed a significant load of oxalate in the body, that it could be stored almost anywhere. Mm-hmm. But of course, they assumed the kidneys had to have failed for that to have happened. And so I will tell a little bit of my story because it shows how you can be well below that threshold of diagnosis mm-hmm. and be having significant issues. Mm-hmm. So um, I was laid into the game with having kids. So at 40, I had my first. At 45, I had my second. And um, by that point in my life, I wasn't feeling like a healthy, vital, you know, adult female anymore. I was starting to feel really tired. And of course, you've had kids. And so maybe some of that's kids. And I was in my 40s. Maybe some of that was getting older. But by the time my daughter was about two and a half, I was thinking seriously that although my problems hadn't become what would be described as really serious yet, they seem to be just steadily progressing in that Mm -hmm. direction. And I seem to be doing all the right things and not getting better. So I was eating more plant-based. I was eating Mm -hmm. these high nutrient superfoods. I was doing all the right things. And and even my functional med doctor looked at me at the time like, I don't understand why you're not getting better results. Mm -hmm. So... I was seeing a functional med doctor, but we were also seeing a functional med naturopathic Mm -hmm. doctor. And I took my daughter around that time when she was about two and a half to see him because she was having these problems with rashes that almost looked like chemical burns. I had no idea where they were coming from. Um, And she was having a lot of pain and tenderness um, in the tissues of her vulva. And we were in the process of potty training. And I, you know, I was thinking, well, maybe it's yeast has her upset Mm -hmm. or, but none of the yeast things worked. And, you know, after your second baby, you're not like the brand new mom who doesn't know anything anymore. And I thought, well, I'm doing all the right things. Why is this not working? Right. So I, I take her to the, to the naturopath and he says, she has an oxalate problem. And I remember clearly saying to him, what's an oxalate? I had been a bit of a nutrition geek on the side for my entire life. I had never heard of this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I came home from that appointment. I tell my husband that she's, you know, got 
what's been diagnosed as an oxalate problem, that there's another diet. He goes, oh no, not another diet. Because that's, <laughs> that's the other thing with the interest. I had been trying different things, trying to get mm-hmm. better. So I decided that if my daughter had to eat a different diet, she was smart. She was aware of what she was having to eat. You know, she wasn't, she wasn't a little baby anymore. And other people around the table would be eating differently than her if she was on the diet and nobody else was on it. Mm-hmm. So I went on it with her. And that was a really radicalizing experience because I went from you know, real problems with energy. I had tested as having low um, adrenals. I had problems with my thyroid. I had difficulties with digestion. I was taking like handfuls of digestive enzymes to try and get my food down. Um, I was having significant issues with sleep, not falling asleep, but waking up in the middle of the night, sort of mm-hmm. wide awake. Um, and it, you know, lack of vitality, my immune system seemed low. Like there were some things that were connected to each other and some things that were, they were all different systems, even if there was some connection. So I start doing this diet with my daughter and everything across the board starts to improve. And I went, it's amazing. What? <laughs> and nobody's, nobody's figured this out for me, even though they were treating my daughter and me at the same time. So uh, on the recommendation of the of the naturopathic doctor, I had gotten involved with a support group called Trying Low Oxalates. They are probably the biggest support group out there, although there's lots of other ones starting up, but 29,000, I think, now on Facebook. Wow. Um, and I got involved with that group, and I learned everything I could, and I also got involved with Susan Owens, who is the... Um, you know, biomedical researcher behind that group. And because she saw how much curiosity and how much I wanted to learn about it, I started to work with her and became one of the moderators on the group. And kind of long story short, uh, it totally changed my life because I went from being in the business world um, and solving a problem to do with information or technology to totally changing my career direction so that now I'm a nutritionist and I'm helping people solve their diet riddles. But what was really interesting about that, even getting some better treatment through my doctors, was how much they were just not on board with oxalate at all. My family physician said, you know, if you don't have kidney stones, you don't have an oxalate problem. My, my, my in with him was that I know him from before he was a doctor. He's an acquaintance and I know him through a group of friends. So at one point I said to him, let's just perform an experiment. Mm-hmm. Let me do a 24 hour urine catch. Let's just see how much oxalate's in my urine. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Cause I was, you know, at that point I was willing to not talk to him about it anymore sure. because he just wasn't, wasn't on board. Um, so through the Mayo Clinic and some of these other big um, people who are setting the diagnostic criteria mm-hmm. for things like hyperoxaluria, which is oxalate in the urine, mm-hmm. um, we know that they can they can use 45 milligrams of oxalate in a daily urine as kind of a cutoff point. They can actually diagnose you with hyperoxaluria anywhere above that. I had 293 milligrams of oxalate wow. in, in the in the sample that we took. Wow. So at that point, my doctor turned out to be a lot smarter than I gave him credit for. And he said to me, okay, you know more than I do. What are we doing next? So this really, though, then just totally changed my life. Because I went, if I wasn't seen, my daughter wasn't seen, mm-hmm. then it turns out there's links to asthma and COPD and a number of different lung conditions. And my son had had allergies and asthma his whole life. I put him on a low oxalate diet. All of a sudden, he wasn't taking antihistamines like a food group anymore. And I went, okay, how many of us are out there with something that's chronic or inflammatory where oxalate might be part of the underlying driver? I mean, it's, it's not necessarily everything or the only thing. But what if it's another factor and it's a confounding factor because nothing we do in testing looks for it? Right, right. And I think, 
you know, before we continue, I want to, I want to backpedal a little bit. I know myself included, I got little to no nutrition training, either as a nurse or a nurse practitioner. I know physicians, PAs, et cetera, traditionally Western medicine trained providers get little to no information, or it's predominantly focused on the USDA food guide pyramid, which is heavily slanted towards subsidized foods. So uh, with that being said, I think it's amazing that your healthcare provider was open-minded enough to test you and then be open-minded enough to learn through you. So I think that is the true tale of an open-minded healthcare provider And I I like to believe that there are many of us out there. Um, I truly believe that we are designed to be lifelong learners. And it doesn't just stop when we finish our education, that we're meant to evolve, shift, and change throughout our lifetime. So for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with what an oxalate is, what is it, and why should we be concerned about it? Absolutely. So the bottom line is that oxalate is a compound which is predominantly found in plant foods. Mm -hmm. So... There's the odd um, animal product, which might have oxalate in it, but usually that's because of how it's been processed, spices Mm -hmm. that have been added, things like that. So unfortunately, it seems to go hand in hand with um, foods which particularly have high minerals in them, which actually makes sense the more you know about oxalate. Oxalate is something the plant uses to draw up minerals from the soil. It's actually a mineral chelator. One of the most common concerns I see in perimenopause and menopause is hair loss, hair breakage, hair shedding. And knowing that over 80 million Americans are impacted by this is both reassuring, but it's wonderful to know that there are products available that can help with these symptoms. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress in perimenopause or menopause. They can be helpful for addressing dry scalp. And have you wanted to take control of your hair health but aren't sure where to start? This is where a Divi can be hugely impactful. I love their scalp serum. And we know that the scalp serum improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes our hair follicles, and removes product and oil buildup. There are some key ingredients, including tea tree oil, which works to reduce and prevent excess oil buildup on the scalp, amino acids that help to strengthen hair, fight frizz, which is my greatest concern, and reduce breakage, and copper tripeptide 1, which is a small protein composed of the three amino acids to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is nourishing and hydrating to our scalps. As I mentioned, Divi is not just for those experiencing hair loss. I have found it to be hugely helpful for scalp health and all of Divi's products, including their shampoos and conditioners, come together to create a full daily solution that helps women nourish their hair and get to the root of scalp health. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health and do it with clean science-backed ingredients? Go to divyofficial.com slash Cynthia or enter Cynthia at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's D-I-V-I official.com slash Cynthia for 20% off your first order. As I mentioned, my favorite product is the scalp serum. And now that we're in the deep throes of winter weather, it is so wonderfully nourishing and moisturizing. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor colostrum. And the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mycosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including 
including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armrest Colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. And so so for a plant, this is a tool. This is how I'm going to get the magnesium in, the calcium in, the whatever. Um, It's also the reason why spinach, which is so high in so many minerals, is so awful from an oxalate standpoint. Spinach is just saturated with it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the things I learned is that spinach is actually using it as a physical deterrent, not just a biochemical deterrent. Because when oxalate is bound to calcium or iron and spinach is high in iron, you get a particularly insoluble oxalate, the Mm -hmm. kind that causes kidney stones. So spinach actually physically damages the mouth of an insect who tries to eat a spinach leaf, which is quite shocking. But, um, you know, it's just one of those aspects of oxalate. So that's one, you know, you get these highly insoluble crystals that can form. Um, It is in plant foods because plants are using it, not just for protection, but for drawing up minerals into their structure. The other thing it does, though, is that it acts as a mitochondrial toxin. Now, this is really key for everyone to understand. The mitochondria are the powerhouses of our cells. And in light of a lot of the chronic disease states that we have here in the U.S. and abroad, uh, mitochondrial disease is a, is a real issue. And if our mitochondria are damaged, we cannot function optimally. So all those things you were mentioning, you know, the fatigue and the poor sleep and feeling like you lost your vitality, those for many people that have got mitochondrial dysfunction, that is a hallmark of their, their symptoms. So sorry right. to interject. I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm emphasizing that. That's huge. Yeah, and this is, I'm, I really appreciate that you're doing that because I want to make sure that people get as full a picture of what oxalate can be doing as possible. So the problem with with, um, oxalate and the mitochondria is essentially what I call dirty fuel. Mm -hmm. If you were feeding a gas-powered car diesel fuel, you would gum up the engine. The fuel is dirty. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing with oxalate in our food is essentially consuming dirty fuel. It gums up the mitochondria. Now that's really that's layman's terms, but it's a mitochondrial toxin. If you've got mitochondrial issues, you don't want oxalate around. But if, if that wasn't enough, there's another, there's another gift that, from oxalate that just keeps giving. And that is that oxalate um, can be mistaken by the cell transporters and pulled up into your tissues when they're looking for certain nutrients because it's a bit of a biomimic. And so, as I understand it, for tissues that are using sulfate, oxalate, and again, for for the average person, the the endings of the words are the same. And what I'm trying to also say is that the endings of the chemicals are the same. So the cell transporter sees a, a molecule of oxalate, sees a molecule of sulfate, it can confuse which one it's trying to get. And so, um, the richer you have oxalate in the bloodstream, the more likely the cell transporter will get confused. And of course, your probably biggest single user of sulfate is the liver. And that's a very bad thing to have struggling because its mitochondria are being poisoned. But there's another um, you know, key nutrient that it, uh, that it mimics, which is bicarbonate. Mm-hmm. And your pancreas is a big user of bicarbonate. And again, we're talking about food digestion and yeah. you know, being able to get nutrients. And oxalate will compete with bicarbonate for uptake. So you have these things going on, which are 
subtle but pervasive. Mm -hmm. And I think that also makes it hard to diagnose because it's not distinctive. Oh, and last thing it does, (laughs) it's a free radical. So it does all the things that any free radical does. So that means you can be using up B6, trying to deal with the reactive oxygen species um, and any of the, you know, the other nutrients again, which are trying to fight with, um, with anything that's a, that's a, oxidant in the body. I don't know about you, but I like to enjoy a nice wine glass after a long day. But the problem is that so many of the wines have harmful chemicals like pesticides or they have way too much sugar, which would damage your health in the long run. After doing some researching, I discovered Dry Farm Wine, the only health-focused natural wine club in the world. Their wine is all natural and additive-free lab tested for purity, sugar-free, and low alcohol. So you can enjoy the taste of good wines without the massive chemical or sugar intake. By joining the Dry Farm Wine Club, you can choose how often you'd like to receive the wines. You can choose monthly or every other month and how many you'd like to receive. And as a special gift, if you sign up with our link, you can get a bonus bottle of pure natural wine with your first order for just one extra penny. Visit the link in the description to claim your bonus bottle of natural wine and join the Dry Farm Wine Club. And, you know, I, I think many of the listeners know my story from last year. I was in the hospital for 13 days. And, and before, before I went, went away on my trip with my husband and, and uh, ended up in the hospital, I was paleo for years. I was gluten, grains, dairy-free, totally happy in that space. Well, anyone who's gluten-free probably eats a lot of oxalates because you're eating a lot of nuts and you're probably eating a lot of grains. And so much to my surprise, when I left the hospital after 13 days and ultimately got my, you know, my digestion rerouted and had a, my, um, my, gall, my, my gallbladder, my appendix removed, I was amazed to find that the only thing that I was able to eat without upsetting my stomach was meat. And when I started doing my N of one, when I started recognizing that perhaps what my body was reacting to were oxalates. I was stunned and humbled and my digestion improved about a hundred percent within 24 to 48 hours because I was eating occasionally, you know, simple meals, almond flour crackers. And, you know, I was having greens with my meals because that's what I was supposed to do. And trying to explain to my Italian mother that, you know, who was always pushing vegetables on us growing up, which is a good thing. Uh, that I had about three things other than meat that I could consume that didn't upset my digestion. So even for those of us that are in the nutrition space, I don't think we talk enough about oxalate sensitivities and how profoundly pervasive they really are. Um, so let's you know let's pivot a little bit. And I know that we've got a big celery juice craze going on oh, and a lot of people eating kale, which a good friend of mine calls killer kale. Let's talk about where it's found because we know it's plant-based predominantly. We know that, you know, you gave a beautiful explanation about spinach and I didn't actually even know that it creates mitochondrial dysfunction. I mean, that's huge. So let's talk about where it's found and how we can kind of be mindful of, of how to navigate um, our exposure to it. Yeah. And this is part of the reason I got into the field was because this is a very nuanced discussion. Mm -hmm. The challenge with oxalate is unlike anything else. If you're trying to remove gluten from your diet, you have a list of things, you know, if you don't eat those, you're good, right? Dairy, same thing. You know, most, most of the kinds of things that we're trying to manage in the diet to, to avoid as avoidance are pretty straightforward. The thing with oxalate is that near as I can tell at this point after 10 years in, and I actually work with um, a gentleman who is a PhD and um, published in the field, Dr. Michael Liebman, and he does oxalate testing. And so I've worked with him many times to get foods tested for clients or to get foods tested through the support groups. So I'm in and out of the testing all the time. Near as I can tell, you can have a different oxalate profile for every variety of a single food. Mm-hmm. So curly kale, bad. Dino kale, lacinato kale, purple kale, good. Interesting. So even like Tuscan kale, which used to be my favorite. So the thing is, is that you almost need to know the profile of each variety of food. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point in my time, you could ask me about almost any food and I can probably just spout you what it is, Mm -hmm. but that's not a short term 
prospect. I remember going shopping with a 20 page food list printed out so I could check ingredients and stuff. I mean, if you're talking about things like legumes, which a lot of people like to include, um, if you're eating plants, at least there's, you know, good protein, good nutrients, you know, good fiber. Um, I don't, I don't personally eat many legumes anymore. Uh, but my system is much like yours. I'm, I'm much better with a smaller range of things and more carnivorous. But I do have clients where, I, where I'm helping them to implement a wider range of things. And if you want to eat legumes, the ones that are really popular, pinto beans, black beans, kidney beans. Mm-mm. Interesting. The right ones are red lentils, okay. yellow and green split peas, black-eyed peas. Those are probably the best protein sources in that space and the best options in terms of oxalate. So, so it's not, it's, it doesn't always correspond to something clear. Like I've had people say to me, Oh, I can, I can taste it. Well, maybe you can taste it in spinach, but I would find it really um, a bit surprising if you could taste it in a raw carrot. Right. Cause a raw carrot's sweet spinach isn't. And there's, there's that, something that's going on with spinach right. that I could tell even as a kid, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and, you know, I know lots of people who eat lots of almonds. They're not tasting the oxalate in there. Um, and nuts are one of the worst categories. You know, it's, it's interesting. When I took all nuts out, which was very sad because as someone who enjoys absolutely. eating nuts, and I have a child with a nut allergy, so I was responsible. I would eat them usually when I was working in the hospital or working um, in clinic, I was surprised when I took almonds out how much I did not enjoy the taste of almonds when I tried them again. Like I tried them once and I was like, what have I been, almonds don't even taste all that great. I think if you're talking about a nut that maybe tastes delicious, like a walnut actually doesn't taste bad, you know, macadamia nut that's salted. Oh my gosh, that's heavenly. Right. But so what would you say if there were 10 oxalate, high oxalate foods, what are the ones that you most frequently see? I know like spinach, kale, celery are probably easily identifiable. Nuts is another big um, group that these fall into, but would be some of the more common things that you're talking about? The the really heavy hitters are going to be some of the legumes I was talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, pinto beans, black beans. A lot of the legumes are really high. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the gluten-free alternatives Teff is eye-wateringly high. Quinoa is is a pretty heavy hitter. Um, So there's a lot of these alternative grains. Buckwheat's another one. We loved buckwheat here. My my son at the time was very sad when I took that out of his diet, but it just, you know, it wasn't doing us any favors. Mm -hmm. Um, But the what I call skyscraper high ones would be beets, chard spinach, mm-hmm. almonds, most nuts, but almonds are, again, mm-hmm. just uh, like an ounce of almonds has about 300 milligrams of oxalate. Wow. So every milligram of nut is 10 milligrams of oxalate. It's so concentrated. Wow. Um, rhubarb is very high oxalate. And it's interesting because when I was a kid, almost everybody in the area where I lived had a backyard rhubarb plant. Everybody knew you didn't eat the leaves. That was oxalate, but it's in the stems too. Interesting, because I know my my father-in-law loved strawberry rhubarb pie. That was something he looked forward to. Mm-hmm. And he was like a beet green fiend. Like yes. when the beet greens were just ready, he loved when my mother-in-law would saute them. Um, so that's fascinating. And, and thinking about you know, the celery juice space, because that is craze. That is what got me thinking more about oxalates because I had some people that would say to me, I love celery juice in the morning. It's refreshing. It's a great way to start my day. I'm like, that's fine. Then I had other people that would say to me, I don't understand what the, the attraction is because when I eat this, I feel horrible. I'm celery tired. Juice, yeah. Like it, headaches. It, the, the, the problem there is quantity more than anything. Mm-hmm. Although you have two kinds of oxalate, which I didn't mention. You do have the crystalline oxalate, which I talked about with spinach, but you also have soluble oxalate. And is that worse than the other? That's a a very nuanced question. Mm -hmm. Soluble may be worse, although I would argue if you've got enough concentration of either, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter. But soluble is um, more easily absorbed by the gut. 
Okay. So the challenge with celery juice is that I actually use some celery, but small amounts. Mm -hmm. So the celery juice craze has people drinking 16 ounces of it to start the day, right? Um, I'll I'll leave aside my concerns about somebody who calls themselves the medical medium as a a purveyor of your information. Well, that aside, but 16 ounces of highly soluble oxalate to start your day when your gut's empty and it's you know ready to soak things up there's not even there's not even other food in there to slow down how rapidly it hits your system right right so depending on who you are and how much your tissue load is of oxalate yeah that could be enough to be causing you a real difficulty and i think the thing that we don't really realize is that and i'm sure this is true for me oxalate can be building up over decades. So my first recognizable oxalate symptom, as I look back on my own life, was probably when I was about seven. It was a couple of years after I'd had my tonsils and adenoids out. Mm -hmm. And the antibiotics that I'd been on for um, a couple of years before that would have totally eradicated any gut bacteria I had Mm -hmm. to break it down. Yeah. So I was starting to build it up then. At 20, I had my gallbladder out. A lot Mm -hmm. of people have, in the oxalate world, have their gallbladders out. And I suspect that those stones are not being tested often enough to see whether or not they're oxalate-based stones. And there is research which says we do get oxalate-based gallstones. So this this wasn't new. It was just... I'm in my 40s, it had gotten serious enough and I was compromised enough that I started to realize something was going on. But I still hadn't tied them completely together because your symptoms can be offset by hours or even days. It'll depend on whether or not you're constantly eating high oxalate. If you're constantly eating high oxalate, your body kind of develops tolerance in the same bad way you can develop tolerance to alcohol. It's not that it's not causing you a problem. It's that you're not, the the body isn't bothering to send the flag up the flagpole and say, look, something's going on here. Sure, sure. So what are some of the more common symptoms that you see in your clinical practice that you see with your client base? And, and one aside that I want to make is that I feel like middle age, you know, so you've referenced your 40s and I've talked very openly about, um, I feel like our 40s are kind of a leveling ground. You know, all the things maybe that have been building up that maybe in our teens, 20s, 30s weren't a big deal. All of a sudden, we as women hit our 40s and the, the playing field is leveled. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, symptoms that maybe weren't an issue years ago all of a sudden become an issue. And I think as we kind of make that transition into perimenopause and menopause, uh, that is when our bodies, you know, I always say that's when you almost get a little bit of a fight. It's like all the things that you're supposed to be doing, you know, the self-care and the stress management and the sleep quality, et cetera, all of a sudden it'll catch up with you. And, and I, if you're not paying enough attention, your body will definitely let you know. So what are some of the more common symptoms that you see with oxalates? Well, and I'll, I'll speak a little bit about symptoms and which systems in the body it tends to get at quickly or quicker than others. Um, oxalate can actually be stored over time in the thyroid. There's really good research that I've seen that was done um, looking at the thyroid of people who had passed away of all different ages. So they weren't, they weren't restricting conditions or they weren't looking for certain. I've been using MitoPure for the last two years and I've added this to my routine for multiple reasons. Number one, it's a foundational supplement for me and my family. It keeps things simple and I know that I cannot get enough of urolithin A in my food to derive the same benefits. And if you're not familiarized with urolithin A, it's a signaling molecule, but it's also actively involved in anti-aging, energy production. And I take Timeline because of its remote remarkable healthy aging solution that activates key critical cellular pathways in my body. It's a total game changer for healthy aging. I alternate between using the soft gels and powder depending on whether or not I'm traveling. And we know that restoring cellular energy is a key to enduring health. And this is concluded in a recent publication in Nature Metabolism, which is a top scientific journal 
identifying that newly energized cells may provide many more years of healthy life to people. Yet as we age, we know that cellular energy production naturally declines and reduces our prospects of optimal health and longevity. That's the great thing about Timeline is you can restore cellular energy and support healthy aging. I've noticed the biggest improvements in my energy and sleep levels. We know that Timeline is clinically shown to give our cellular energy generators, the mitochondria, new power. And when taken daily, it replaces aging mitochondria. So it upregulates mitophagy and rebuilds new ones or mitogenesis. Timeline is the only nutrient that can do what it does. So Timeline renews your cells to a more powerful state. My listeners can get 10% off your first order at timeline.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off at timeline.com slash Cynthia. I know you're going to love this product. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Diseases that they'd had, they just wanted to look at the thyroid in terms of oxalate, and they found that they could predict age by the amount of oxalate in the thyroid. So really? pretty significant, right? And one of the things that happened to me, and I think is happening to a lot of women, is that their thyroid is struggling as they get older. And I'm highly suspicious that it may not be the only factor, but oxalate's certainly in there like a dirty shirt. Now, is it, so I know that 80 to 85% of hypothyroidism, so underactive thyroid, really points to autoimmunity. So Hashimoto's or Graves. And then there's this smaller percentage of, of women, about 10 to 15%, that don't have an autoimmune thyroid issue, but their thyroid is underactive. And, and I do agree that there are probably multiple factors. And is there research to suggest that it's, that they're more prone to autoimmune issues, meaning, you know, that gut connection, which is so significant? Or is this kind of more of like, like a nebulous topic? You know, they haven't really done enough correlation to. Yeah, there's really a problem in the research because as long as the researchers are biased that without kidney stones, there's not an oxalate issue, they're not looking for these connections. Mm-hmm. So um, I can say from my own experience, though, oxalate, because it drives inflammation, And there's new research which shows it drives the inflammasome directly. Mm -hmm. Um, It can look like autoimmune too. Like what Mm -hmm. if it's one of the triggers for autoimmune? Um, When I was in my 20s, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Wow. This was the first radicalizing experience. I Mm -hmm. changed my diet Mm -hmm. and the arthritis cleared up. 
But what if that was the first foray of oxalate? Because oxalate collects in the in the joints. Yeah. Um, you can. It, that's not as common. The most common ones are thyroid, insomnia or or sleep issues, mm-hmm. gut issues, and that makes perfect sense because the gut from entrance to exit is mm-hmm. ground like it's ground zero for oxalate. That's the right. first exposure, right? right. Um, most people will have some degree of liver compromise just because the liver can't get the sulfate it needs. So sulfation okay. suffers. Um, energy is a big one, low energy. <clears throat> and there's not research on this, but there's whisperings in the background. And some, uh, uh, some scientists who um, are, are working with oxalate but haven't done this testing directly are saying it's connected to mast cell, which would make sense because of the mitochondria. Yeah. Um, so I see a lot with sleep, with digestion, with the thyroid, with energy levels, and sometimes with pain. So okay. that, may be, that may be all over, diffuse pain. It may be fibromyalgia type pain. It may, be, it may also be localized pain because oxalate, because of this connection to the inflammasome, tends to get stored at the location of trauma. So surgeries, mm. injuries, um, you know, or other tissues that have become inflamed and then oxalate gets drawn to that, that site biochemically and then ends up getting stranded there, stored there. That's amazing. I mean, this is a lot to take in. And then you can also understand because of the constellation of symptoms that could be mitigated, how it's overlooked Absolutely. It overlaps with all yeah. sorts of other things, right? So that there's not, if there's a distinctive thing that I've seen, it'll be this. This is the one distinctive thing that I can, I can really hang my hat on. If somebody lowers oxalate in their diet and they say to me, I fell 15 years ago on this hip and it hurts like crazy since I'll go, okay, now we've got it. Because that's one that you're not going to see because you've changed your diet. Right. Mm-hmm. There's, it's, it's one of those things where I can say, okay, you changed your diet and this thing happened. And the only thing we were manipulating was oxalate. So now I can say, I'm pretty sure, you know, even if you haven't had other like really definitive tests, like my 24 hour urine test, which was pretty <laughs> definitive, um, oxalate's part of the play here because there's no way that all of a sudden out of the blue, when you haven't done anything that your right hip hurts, but you fell really badly skiing five years ago and that was the hip, right? Sure. So things like that, then I can say a bit more um, definitively for somebody, but otherwise it's, it's like a, this process of trying to put stakes in the ground and seeing where the oxalate's playing and where it could be something else. Mm -hmm. And because oxalate looks to tip over this histamine mast cell issue that some people have, um, it can be a very nuanced kind of process then because you have to be managing histamine and oxalate. Which is a bear. Which is, and they're both, they're both challenging, right? And, and it'll take some time to get those stakes in the ground because initially first, even three to six months for somebody like that. So many things are still moving. You know, they'll say to me, well, well, is this histamine or oxalate? And I'll go, (laughs) hard. could be both, could be either. So we have to keep trying to get those stakes in and nail them down. Right. So it's, it, it, it's, it's difficult that way. I don't know how anybody would get a really easy, straightforward diagnosis. And the, the fortunate thing with my daughter is that her rashes were distinctive and this you know, functional med ND had seen them before, and she was actually developing the beginning stages of vulvodynia. What two and wow. a half year old has vulvodynia? Oh my right? goodness. And vulvodynia is one of those ones that's also linked to oxalate. So there's a few conditions thyroid, uh, cystic fibrosis is linked to oxalate. Really? Yeah, there's something about the cell transporters. Um, and I'm not somebody who's really great with the genetics. It starts to look like alphabet soup to me. Mm-hmm. But what I can tell you is that there, the, the variation on the cell transporter when you have cystic fibrosis does seem to mean that oxalate will be trafficked into the cell more easily. And of okay. course, you, if you don't have cystic fibrosis, but you have one of those genes, that mm-hmm. might make you more susceptible. Or if you have one of the constellation of those genes. So why would I turn up not distinctively at 48, but my daughter distinctively at two and a half. 
there could be a bunch of things going on there. She was gestated by a woman who was eating a high oxalate diet. And that's what I was wondering if it was that maternal fetal transmission that is that that much more susceptible. So what are some of the things we can do preventatively or proactively to obviously avoidance? um, But what are some of the other things that we can do? Are there supplements that you utilize with your clients, you know, binders and things like that? What is, what have you found to be effective? Some of the best things, especially if you haven't developed a serious problem yet, is just drop those extremely high oxalate mm-hmm. foods. Don't, don't change your whole diet, but let's say that your afternoon snack might be walnuts instead mm-hmm. of almonds, right? Like that, some things like that are really easy. And for some people, as long as they excrete <laughs> it quickly enough, if they make that drop, that's sufficient right? So it's really about how how easy you traffic in and how easy you get it out. So small changes in diet may make a big difference. The other thing that you can really do, which can be really helpful, is things like Epsom salts baths, which are really easy. And the thing there is twofold. You're getting sulfate into the body. So that's helping the liver be able to get sulfate instead of oxalate. And if the oxalate stays in the bloodstream, the kidneys get a chance to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. So if, if it's not being taken up into the cells, that helps. So sulfate kind of muscles it out of the way. And because Epsom salts is magnesium sulfate, and magnesium is one of what I call oxalate's preferred dance partners, it's going to chelate that quite readily. Most of us will benefit by having extra magnesium available because then the oxalate meets the magnesium. And it's a more soluble form than calcium magnesium, which means it's easier on the kidneys to get it out. So mm-hmm. That's like really simple. And all of us need more relaxation, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say magnesium is one of the most poorly understood electrolytes in the body. After 16 years in cardiology, I am super savvy with magnesium and people think it's funny, but I'm like, you know, even if you're eating a nutrient dense diet and you source everything from organic, you know, pastured, I mean, you're doing all the right things, you're still not getting the same nutrient profile that our grandparents did. And so we still need more magnesium. And if you're stressed and who's not stressed with social distancing to some degree, uh, we need more magnesium. So those are super helpful things. And so, you know, when it comes to oxalates as, you know, kind of a, a passion and your niche, um, what have been some of your key insights? Is there really good research that's going on? I know you mentioned a lot of it's related to kidney stones, but what are some of the things that people can be looking out for either um, information that's coming out or ways that they can get more information in, in a, in a, in a layman, layman, a layperson friendly manner? Right. Okay. So I'm in and out of PubMed all the time dealing with the alphabet soup when I'm reading things. Um, So one of the things that I actually do is I have a Patreon group where I post oxalates, potential overlap with different conditions, and I am the queen of the analogy. So the the whole business of, you know, preferred dance partners and things like that, that's my language. Absolutely. 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 So I do that. Other sources of good information would be the Trying Low Oxalates support group. It's on Facebook now and Groups.io. I know all the people who are helping moderate that group. I help moderate that group. Um, And, you know, that's a place where I think you're getting credible information because there's a lot of people out there who don't understand the full playing field and it's a big playing field. Yes. Um, Other research which I've been reading... But you, you do have to keep in mind that you, you need to be looking sometimes in the kidney research. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a lot coming out now on oxalate and the inflammasome. There's some very disturbing but very important research on oxalate and breast cancer, which I think wow. most women should be understanding. Um, it turns out that oxalate, and you as a fellow professional, you understand that researchers do not label an article with a with a incendiary title Mm -hmm. um, for fun because they tend to be very conservative in their language, right? Okay, so oxalate was called a breast cancer trigger. Really? 
And so some of the things that I think, um, you know, again, back to let's just take our oxalate down, even if we don't have any problems at this point, because maybe you dodge a bullet. Mm -hmm. Um, There is very interesting research if you look up oxalosis. Again, they'll talk in terms of, you know, kidney um, issues as -hmm. the preamble. But um, I've had clients who had oxalosis because they were taking in like 3,000 milligrams of oxalate a day because they were eating beets and they were eating almonds and they were eating spinach and they were eating gluten-free alternatives and their diet was just so high on their paleo diet or whatever. They were, they were just taking in eye-watering levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that research tells us it can be in the joints, the bones, the blood vessels, the heart. Like It can just be stored in so many tissues. And, and so I, I think it can become a bit overwhelming if somebody goes for too much information, but, um, you know, if people wanted information that's really useful, like practical and applicable, and I definitely consider myself, you know, the, the practical applications gal, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'd be, I'd love to see them on my Patreon group and I'd be happy to see them on the trying low oxalates group. You know, I'm in, I'm involved in both those things. Awesome. So where can we find you on social media and where, and tell us about your website and all those good things. Okay. So I have a website, lowoxcoach.com. And, um, Tim Noakes actually teased me about that and called me ox, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sticking with it because oxalate's long and ox is short and it's yep. easier to type in. So yep. lowoxcoach.com that actually lists all of my social media. So I am on Facebook. I am on Twitter. Um, I am currently on Instagram, although I'm starting to think I'm not an Instagram gal, but uh, I very infrequently I might turn up there and, and, and post a little nugget. So really the best places to find me are probably Twitter and Facebook, um, Patreon, and the Trying Low Oxalates group uh, in the Facebook environment. Well, thank you for your time today. I have certainly learned a lot myself, as I know our our listeners will as well. Um, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day, and I hope you are able to continue to navigate social distancing without too many many snags. Well, actually, so far, so good. And because I'm one of few people who actually deals with a low oxalate diet, I've been doing consults over Zoom for years before that Skype. So um, the social distancing is going okay because I've been working from home for ages. But I, I sure hope everybody who's listening, um, taking in this podcast is, is also navigating it okay and, and doing okay too. Absolutely. I feel like eight, eight weeks in, it seems like it's been a blink of an eye, but it certainly, you know, retrospectively doesn't feel like it's been that fast. Thank you again for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, Cynthia. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.